Welcome to podcast number 17 of How to Rocket Your Private Investigation Business. I'm your host, John A. Hoda. Today's date is December 29th, 2020. Our guest this week is Tom Williams. Tom graduated from the University of Detroit with a BA in accounting and went on to become a criminal investigator investigating financial matters with the Internal Revenue Service. He then created Great Lakes Investigations in December of 1992, where he specializes in criminal defense and adoption cases. Tom is celebrating 50 years of being an investigator next year. He's a board-certified fraud examiner and a board-certified legal investigator. My pleasure to have Tom Williams on the show. Welcome to my new podcast, How to Rocket Your PI Business, and it features successful private investigators who offer insights into their careers and advice to those just starting out or to those who are struggling. You will learn from the best. And of course, we cannot finish a show without asking them to share their favorite detective stories and maybe a few sage marketing tips. As a working investigator, coach, and writer, I hope to bring you inspiration, information, and entertainment in the areas that interest me most. Gather round my campfire as I invite you to listen in. This episode is brought to you by my recently published books for private investigators. How to launch your private investigation business. How to market your private investigation business. And how to boost your private investigation business. It also appears a three-book set in How to Rocket Your Private Investigation Business, the complete series. All can be found at your favorite online retailers in ebook or softcover. Did you know that I also coach private investigators how to survive and thrive in business? Visit my website at www.thepicoach, or one word, dot com. That is thepicoach.com to learn more. Hi, Tom. Welcome to the show. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. It's great to talk to you. Well, it's good to talk to you again, sir. We've known each other quite a few years now. I might want to go back and ask about when we first met each other. But first, how's life over in Traverse City, Michigan? Traverse City, Michigan is beautiful. It's a resort area. I don't know if you've been there, John. Not yet. It's a resort area. It's right on Lake Michigan. It's a slice of heaven. I've lived there for 45 years, having grown up in Detroit. My wife and I moved up there, raised our family up there, and we still live there. It's, it's absolutely beautiful. Fantastic. As we record this today, uh, December 4th, 2020, it's kind of a murky day here in southwestern Connecticut, but it's not snowing. There's no uh, sleet or snow forecasted for the weekend, so uh, we're doing okay in late fall, early winter. So, Tom, I'm going to ask you about why did you decide to become a PI, and what did your original idea look like, and we'll get the ball rolling with that. Well, that's, uh, I guess, not a simple question or answer for me. I graduated from college with a degree in accounting, and I had done some public accounting and whatnot. Along the way, I stumbled upon a job opportunity to work as a federal agent. I was hired right out of college as a special agent with the IRS, criminal investigator. A recruiter came to school one day and said, how would you like to investigate tax fraud? That sounded a lot better than anything else I was doing. So I joined in there, and as a special agent with the IRS, we have the same authority, same training, basic training, et cetera, as all of the other federal agencies that have special agents. And every 
federal agency has a special agent. A lot of people think it's just the FBI. They have special agents, of course, ATF special agents, immigration has special agents, Department of Labor has special agents, IRS has special agents. And we all had the same arrest authority, all had the same pay scales, and we had the same basic training. And by that, I mean law enforcement training, mm-hmm. the arrest techniques, firearms training, et cetera, you know, learning about the evidence and procedure, et cetera. And then each agency then would train their own people in their own area of specialty. The FBI had a broad coverage into many areas of federal law because I was in the IRS and my background was accounting and numbers. That was where my interest lied. We were uh, trained in, well, basically in the Internal Revenue Code and then other related offenses that would be spinoffs from that. Years that evolved into money laundering stock fraud and bank fraud and whatnot. I enjoyed that. I enjoyed the more complex investigation, very detail-oriented. Along the way, we had to learn how and where to find evidence to prove or disprove whatever the allegations were. That taught me an awful lot about sources of information, not just criminal rules, but the civil rules, because you know the IRS both enforces civil laws as well as criminal law. We were the ones that got Al Capone as an example. Right. And that was an interesting story. We don't know. That was what I did. And I did that for 20 years. While I was doing that, I ended up training new special agents and how to do the job. And I ended up training veteran special agents on how to train special agents. And I ended up writing training classes down at uh, Fletzy down in Glencoe, Georgia, writing some training classes down there for it, and had a number of special assignments. I spent 20 years there. Mm-hmm. My last two years on the job was working in the startup of FinCEN, Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. Some people who are familiar with that, but that's kind of the conduit for all the anti-money laundering record keeping. They gather information from a whole host of federal agencies, information that they are allowed legally to share. Right. They put it under one roof. And then I was also in on the startup of the National Drug Intelligence Center, which was also in. I was still living in Traverse City at that time, and I was commuting every other weekend. That got old. Yeah, I bet. The commuting, and I had sons that were at an important age. I saw an opportunity to go work for a private detective agency in Traverse City, Michigan. The guy that I knew, known him for many years, and he certainly my skills. And background, and he wanted me, and I wanted him. So I found my 20-year vesting in law enforcement was uh, perfect timing. So I left there and went to work with him. I was in one of his satellite offices, I guess you could say. And after about a year of that, having learned a lot about the business aspects of private investigating, I left and then started my own business. I've been on my own ever since. Been really quite busy. It's really been quite gratifying. I will say that his that other business I went his Traverse City office closed. Oh boy. <laughs> I like to say that I put him out of business, but nothing's quite that simple. So that's kind of how I got into it. Is that it helped me transition working for him for a year, year and a half. It helped me learn how to apply the skills that I already had to this new role. And then also to learn more about the occupation of a private investigator. They're not identical, not by any stretch, and learn new techniques and so on. I think in the early days, I was doing an awful lot of surveillance, a lot of insurance defense surveillance. Oh, sure. A lot of people have done that at one time or another. I had done a lot of surveillance as a federal agent 
We worked the mafia in the Detroit area and some of the drug dealers and so on. And some of what we were doing involved following. So we did a lot of surveillance. Surveillance in the private sector, as you know, John, is different. Typically, it's a one-person surveillance versus in the government. You have three or four cars and communication between cars and so on. But in the private sector, it's all budget-driven. It's who can afford it. Right. Now, now you raise a couple of good points there. And the, the best part of it was is that you went from having really one customer for 20-some years, and that was the government, or even to drill that down a little bit more, your supervisor or your manager. That's who, who had to keep happy. That's who, had, that's who did your performance evaluations. That's the person that was your... Yeah, you had a captive client. Right. And the best way to really bring that home is in a surveillance. I could lose a guy on a surveillance when I was with Uncle Sam, and we could always come back another day, no harm, no foul. In the private sector, there isn't an unlimited budget. Often you're alone. Right. You know, you could arguably say if you lose the target, you can lose the client. So you have to keep your, you know, your clients uh, happy. This is they're the people who are paying your bill, and you want to keep them happy. And also, without you have to keep that follow up without getting burned either, which is also important. Right. But it's interesting that uh, now you're and, and just give me an idea of the size, population, area that you're servicing out there in Traverse City. The Traverse City area itself, I think the county has a population. Just under a hundred thousand, but I work all over the state. Presently, my business has evolved. John, I suspect yours has as well over the years because the laws have changed and how private investigators are used has changed and so on. And I do very little surveillance now. Back in the early days, it was a lot of civil insurance defense work, and occasionally a domestic, a boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife kind of a investigation involved, of course. And that gradually evolved into what I am now. To a heavy extent, I do a lot of criminal defense work. Some of it is retained. Some of it is court-appointed. And it's again, I think it's based on my expertise because I I know how to do this. I know about court records. I know about the rules of evidence. I I, I know what's admissible, what's not. uh, You know how you can get an attorney in trouble or not get or avoid getting trouble by your techniques and so on. Uh, I think I might have mentioned you. Over the past, I have talked is that I'm in sales. I think of myself as being in sales, and I have to sell myself first, sell my service second. Well, that's not only important in gaining, retaining clients, but it's also important when interviewing uh, prospective witnesses who might be reluctant. They might not trust you. They might not who are, and so on. You have to sell yourself to them. You have to convince them that they're not. Jeopardy talking or representing uh, someone that they like versus being on the police side of things. So you really have to convince them that it's a good idea for them to speak. Because it's quite common for you to run into people that don't want to get involved, quote unquote. Mm. I don't want to get involved. I don't know how often I hear that. And it's tricky. Sometimes I'm able to convince them it isn't going to hurt them. And it is a good thing to do. We are our brother's keeper. Uh, you can be helpful. So it's selling yourself. You know, for many years I've been at this. I don't carry a gun. Some people choose to carry a gun. I don't live in an area where street crime is, a, is an issue. If I'm knocking on a door, I try to dress like an insurance salesman or something as bland as that and carry a folio, folio under my arm. So they come to the door or peek people. They don't see anything threatening. You know, it's funny to say that because for years, and I mean for years, 
I, if it was the summertime, I'd have a, a collared shirt, you know, short sleeve shirt, or in the wintertime, I'd have maybe a, uh, a duster over a, a nice collared shirt. But they both had on the outside of it the word coach or assistant coach. And people would take a look at me, and in a microsecond, they'd see, oh, that guy's a coach. <laughs> yeah, that's a great idea. I hadn't thought of that. It automatically set the tone for that I wasn't this knuckle-dragging, uh, heavy, that was going to uh, break their stones, for lack of a better word, and that they could always talk to the coach. It, it worked. And I mean, it sounds silly. No, it's not silly. It sounds, what it sounds is it sounds uh, like a trope. It sounds like, oh God, you know, but it really does work. And the reason it worked was because immediately people had to make a decision about you. And if you're wearing a shirt or a, a duster that says coach on it, they're going to maybe give you the first five seconds and that's how you get started. And it's disarming. Yes. the word that comes to my mind. With that. I, I like that even better. It's disarming. You know, yeah. especially now during the COVID era, and even before that, I would do many interviews over the phone. I learned many years ago that if I use the word help, it can be disarming. I, I call someone and wondering if it's a scam. They wonder if they can talk to me and so on. I tell them that who I am, who I'm working for, and that I need your help. And if you tell a person, I need your help, it be also, it can disarm it. Yes. And they will feel less threatened or intimidated and right. so on. Because it, it's a human nature to want to help somebody. Not everybody's in that mood, but there, it's, I think, generally speaking, people respond to them. So that's what I tell them. But I need your help. Yeah, and we're we're talking uh, about field craft a little bit, but it is really salesmanship, both wearing a shirt or saying, I need your help. It's not coming across, and the word I would use is being badge heavy. And we both know what that means. For my listeners, it means coming across with officiousness or a, like some sort of official stature that you have to talk to me or I'm going to make your life miserable. Actually, a private investigator has to flip that around 180 degrees, just like you said. And ask for their help and do it do it politely. But anyway. Everything so, is polite. Everything is polite. And I never, ever, ever, and I mean never, ever use profanity. I don't use it in my personal life. I don't use it in my professional life. And I can tell you a couple of instances where that has actually come to help in my professional life. And I'm always smiling. I'm always thanking them. And I'm always telling them the truth. But that's uh, kind of the things that we're talking about and how do you get a witness to speak to you who is not otherwise inclined to or they're on the fence and not really sure where you're at, but you nonetheless you need their, need their help, testimony. But as far as back in the days when I started my business, how did I get clients? You know, in, in my college courses, I certainly took courses in marketing, which is, you know, part and parcel to any business degree. And marketing is what we did back then back in the old days of Yellow Pages. Right. So I remembered the business I worked for had a Yellow Pages ad that I thought was inferior. And I tried to mention something to him, and that went there. And so when I started my own business, I remembered putting together a one-inch ad that was in the Yellow Pages. Tried to design it. It wasn't really fancy artwork or anything like that, but it, it was an eye-catcher. I didn't go for the alphabetical, mine's first on the list kind of a thing. Other people, I leave that up to other people who it's a funny name that starts with A. But I, I remembered a number of people who called me, and they would see a half a dozen yellow pages, called me, 
and they say, I like your ad. I liked your ad. Well, nowadays, there is no yellow pages. Nowadays, it would be websites, and maybe you can design your website in such a manner that if people are Googling private investigator, Traverse City, Michigan, that you're going to be first or among the first age. Mine is, my name pops up quickly because I've been there so long and longevity. And there, and there isn't, there aren't really others who compete directly head to head with me, do what I do there. There are other licensed PIs in the area that they do something very different. They don't do what I do. So they don't do criminal defense and so on, but it's also, it's networking, John, which is kind of how you and I came to meet. It's joining uh, a couple of quality national organizations or statewide also, but, and then going to their meetings and meeting other people like you and I have met. And when I call you and I tell you this is what I'm working on and I ask for your help in your area, uh, I know that I'm speaking to somebody who speaks the same language I do and hopefully the same. And I, I can't emphasize that enough, that networking joining group, part of it, going to the meetings, learning, listening to the speakers, but maybe more importantly, getting network with others. You know, I, um, I, I didn't understand nor appreciate the value of networking as much until I joined a national association such as NALI, National Association of Investigators. And for me, Tom, it was an eye-opener. It really was. I, and my first meeting was, I think it was 2004. In Indianapolis, I don't know if you made it out there for that one. Oh, I I probably was. Yeah, uh, maybe that's where I met you. Yeah, and I I got to meet uh, not only yourself but also some other you know really top quality private investigators. And for me, it was eye opening. And and the reason I say that I repeat it twice was that I had been a special investigator for insurance companies or an insurance fraud investigator for many years. And when I Joined Nally, I had to learn other skill sets other than insurance fraud investigation. You know, things had changed in the business. I had to learn other things. And when I went to Nally, I was just struck by the quality of professionalism and ethics and the way the Nally members carried themselves. It really, really impressed me. And I said, you know, this is a worthwhile invest- organization to be a part of. So a good bunch of uh, people. And I use the word people because in Prior to that, there weren't many women in the investigation areas that I was in. And now in Nally, I was meeting female investigators from all over the country as well that had areas of specialty that I did not know a clue about. And here I was, you know, the new guy on the block. And I was just so happy to meet all of these people that were really solid investigators. And it just gave me the idea that this was a true profession that I was a part of. And these are people that I wanted to know more about and learn from. And see how and how they could help me and how I could help them, and it was it was wonderful. Absolutely, it, it really. You're you're describing you know the same sentiments I I have about joining Ali. So and when did you I, join? I, May I ask how many many uh, moons I think ago? Ninety three. Wow. Ninety three. I think I joined. Wow. Lenny Accardo is uh, one who introduced me to it and invited me to join. Lenny was a Ali member in Flint area. And uh, you asked me earlier what area I cover. I, I work all over the state of Michigan. I, I'm, I do a lot of work in the Detroit area, in the Lansing area, in the Rapids area. Even though those are not in my backyard, people are calling me because of my expertise, because of my experience, because they've heard of me, because I can still do it. And a lot of the things, John, that you and I do today, we couldn't have 
done them as easily 25 years ago as the internet. I don't know where I was. I think I can't even remember what context it was, but I said that I can do a uh, search now for 25 cents through a database that might've taken me eight hours in order to locate someone. You know, now 25 cent, 15 minute search. It takes me longer to write the report than it does to do the work. Right. You mentioned report. The, the uh, gentleman I worked for back in, uh, when I first retired from government, he, he made a comment to me, and I'll never forget it, because I've always tried to live by that. He said, people pay us a lot of money for us to do what we do. And generally speaking, they only have our reports to show for that. So make them look good. Make, make that report impressive, something that they will be happy to read and something that won't embarrass you or me if it's published in the newspaper the next day. So we always have to be careful in that regard. Oh, yeah. And one of the things that I have become a little bit of a bug about is when I have other people working for me, various areas around the state, is that try to lose the, the, the police jargon. If, they, if that is their background, try to lose that. I don't know what would be an example of that. Well, Perpetrator. Well, there we go. Perp, right. One of them I'd laugh at is that the car was blue in color. <laughs> well, what, did you have to say that blue was a color? I mean, it's. Yeah. I, I know I'm being picky-oon here, but it, it's that kind of a thing. And then using phrases like the undersigned and so on. Because every attorney who does criminal offense work has read, read, read excuse me, read, uh, you know, thousands of the police reports, and they know that that's how police write. Yep. Well, I try to not sound. Yep. I try my hardest to sound like that because I want them to know that, no, no, I'm not a police officer. I'm different. Or shall I say I'm better than that? No, I don't, I don't mean it that way. I'm not trying to denigrate anybody or any occupation. It's just that people pay you and I to, to be the best. They right. want perfection. And I think my drive for perfection is what makes me work harder to do a better job of it. My fear of failing. My fear of missing something. Again, we we don't have a government as our client. We have real clients. There's, there's no, there's really is no opening there for falling short. I remembered I asked a fellow who worked for me a little bit here and there. I asked him to go to a, an adjacent county and to go to their court records and to find all the cases in the name of an individual and get copies of this and this and this and this. I was very specific. And he went down there and he got it and he brought it all back. And I thought that was all of it. I sent it to the client. I sent him a report. And he called me a few weeks later and he said, did you search the records in that county? And I said, well, yeah, I'm like I did. He says, well, how come you didn't find this case or that case? And I said, seriously, those were there? He says, yeah, they're there. I was flabbergasted. I, I was embarrassed and so on. So I hopped in the car and I drove down there. Lady behind the counter, she punched in the name again, as I asked. And it only showed those cases, but they it's a whole page list of people, alphabetical. And when it got to that guy's name, there were two or three cases at the bottom. And I said, what about on the next page? And she, she hit it. She says, oh, yeah, there's three more. Oh, man. You know, we live and learn. That'll only happen once yeah. in my lifetime, and that was it. You and I have uh, made a mistake here or there somewhere along the line, and we remember it. We were, I think about it when I lay in bed trying to sleep at night. 
that's the only way. And and what did I do with the client? I, certainly, I gave him everything that he, the other things that he missed the first time. I did it for free, and I explained to him exactly what happened. I told him the truth. I don't think I could make up a lie to cover that if I wanted to. I told him the truth of what happened. I apologized profusely. I sent it. But he continued to use me after that. And that's where the uh, rubber meets the road. I'm going to call that a marketing tip. And the reason it's a marketing tip is, as you said earlier, when you're selling yourself and then you're selling your service, I know that what I've said when I've been on a marketing call to an attorney, and we're both mostly working for attorneys, that I will say to them, now, I want you to know is that I'm good, probably very good, but there will be times when I'll make a mistake. I'll own up to that mistake immediately, and I'll tell you how I'll fix it. And that's like fresh air to, to, to an attorney, because how many private investigators will admit that they even make a mistake, right? And would, would try to do something about fixing the mistake before it blows up. Instead, what happens is, too many times, the client finds out about a mistake, maybe during trial, maybe during you know a, a direct examination of a witness or cross-examination and find out that everything that they were told was not true. And rather than have been truthful about it, private investigator would just heap on more uh, stuff on top of that. I was going to use a word. And, and unfortunately, you know, it doesn't help and it doesn't help the client. I've, I've retained clients because they know that I am out there doing the best I can. I'm going to protect their fanny as best as I can. And that also, if I make a mistake, I'll own up to it and I'll try and I'll come back to them with a solution rather than telling them about the problem and saying, absolutely immediately own up to it because nobody expects us to be perfect. They want good. But one of the things that I had been asked over the years is what is a good course to take in college to prepare for being a private investigator. And I don't know if you ever get asked that, John, but it's really kind of a, you know, a thought provoking question. Cause then they asked me, well, what's your background? I said, my background's accounting. And then I honed my skills as certain as a federal agent. But one of the things that frequently comes to my mind is that of learning how to be a reporter. Why do I say that? Well, reporters, hypothetically, they learn how to write. They learn how to write well, and our reports are very, very important. Clients should hang on every word. And secondly, reporters, good ones, they learn how to do research. They learn, they're they looking into a topic, and they think outside the box. They learn about the Freedom of Information Act. They learn about public records. They learn about court records. They learn about talking with people and so on. And I think of that as very, very important requirements of being a successful guy is writing well doing a lot of research well. The uh, law enforcement officer or a police officer, what have you, they have a lot of systems of records. They have access to law enforcement systems. But once you retire from that and you come into our world, those systems of records are no longer available. Freedom of Information Act is, but they never had to use it, so they don't may not found it. So the court records that I, might, I mentioned is a tremendous source of information, tremendous source of in places and incidents, etc. The police officers that I know never had to go look. That wasn't part of their training. That wasn't part of work patterns, etc. And so, you know, they did. They they have to learn that. And then there are a lot of sources of information that you and I have access to that 
might even be considered to be better than law enforcement sources, the online databases that you and I subscribe, plus how many counties your state, I don't know, my state has 83 counties, a good number of them have online access to various aspects of their records. Not enough to please me, but it's getting better every day, right? Even the federal courts, there's a there's a, a website, PACER, Public Access Something Something, I forget, it's an acronym for something. PACER allows you to see every federal case, be it civil, be it criminal, be it bankruptcy. You can look at every case. Now, what do I mean by looking at it? Well, first of all, you can find it. Secondly, it'll give you the register of actions and people who don't know what that is or the docket sheet. It's it's like a table of contents, a chronological list of everything that has occurred in that case, and it's listed in order. And if the case is recent enough, maybe the last 10 years, you can download and, wow, a penny a page, something like that. You can download those documents right there and uh, for very little. And these are the kinds of things that you and I know how to do out of necessity that people in law enforcement at every level don't necessarily know how to do because they never had to. And uh, it was never part of the... We're also on the forefront of OSINT, you know, uh, where we're getting uh, open source intelligence, you know, through the internet now, out the different places where things reside. And it just uh, gives us so much more to work with. Oh, my God. Right. And, and in law enforcement, it, there was a... I remember doing this myself that there was a an implied necessity to interview a witness face-to-face in person. So, you know, like you see in the movies, you see the detective grab his coat off the back of the chair and run out the door and hop in the car, go talk to somebody. And, and that that's great. Talking to people on the phone is also good. It's not necessarily in, intruding in their lives as much. Not, they can walk into another room and talk to you where it's quieter as if they're in person in their house and there's children running around, etc. might be a little more cumbersome. The interviewing witnesses on the phone is something that more and more. And during COVID, maybe it's out of necessity. So we refine those skills. Back before caller ID, people would answer the phone. Nowadays, if they don't recognize your number, they don't answer it, but they will listen to a voicemail. So you have to be skilled at what to say and what not to say, depending on the kind of work. Tom, you can call me a dinosaur, but for the first time, 2020, I had my first text interview. <laughs> I conducted the entire interview by text message. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I cut and paste, cut and paste, cut and paste the whole thing into a... Uh, well, you can do a screenshot. Yeah. So. For my client and said, this is how it went. Yeah. And then the second... I just finished working on an assignment yesterday. I was working for a New York City lawyer. I'm in Michigan. I was working for a New York City lawyer I was working for a client and her lawyers in San Francisco on a San Francisco divorce. And it was about a financial matter, a financial investigative matter. The world has truly become a smaller place. I work criminal defense cases all over the state of Michigan. Another thing that I do that's somewhat of a specialty, and I don't know how many other investigators do this, is I work on a lot of adoptions. Really? I work for adoption agencies, yeah. The simple example would be if a young lady wants to place a child for adoption, she goes to an agency and she says, here, this is what I want to do. Well, then we have to identify the father and notify the father. The father certainly has a legal right to become involved in this matter. And they can say yes or no. 
that may not be the end of what it, whatever they say, but we have to find them. And if we can't find them, if they never really got a full name or anything, find them, or if the guy was lying, then, you know, with my credentials and my background and work experience, I can put together an affidavit and show that we did our due diligence. And this person cannot be found based on the information we have. And so the courts are accepting that. And if we do find the guy, we notify him in a formal manner, giving him a document that this is what's going on. He can decide to object to the adoption or he can decide, let it go ahead and that'll be the end of it. He'll never hear from him ever again. But if they want to object to it, then, then I am hired to find everything I can out about this father, the good, the bad, and the ugly, not just like law enforcement does, not just the incriminating information. You need, like I can say, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Right, And we present it to the lawyers. And in Michigan, rule in place where it's they consider the best interest of the child. Okay, It's not mother's rights or father's rights. It's what's in the best interest of the child, which often forefront. And so if I can show that this man and woman are having nothing to do with each other, and this guy has had several criminal convictions, and plus he's got other children that he's not paying child support on, so on, the court will simply terminate those parental rights and move forward with the adoption. But it, it's not just gathering information. It's gathering the information in such a manner that it's admissible. Right. Remember back in the Perry Mason days, there would be an objection, Your Honor. It's incompetent, irrelevant, and immaterial. Well, we have to get competent evidence. We have to get relevant evidence. And it has to be material. We have to gather all of those things. And a, a good uh, point on this to, to my listeners is that a lot of times we might have a person that wants to engage our services for what would end up in court later on. Many times I urge them to have their attorney contact and tell them, I tell them point blankly, what you're asking me to do, I understand the general concept of what you would like me to find out, what you need to know. But on the other hand, I need to know what your attorney needs in court in order to prove your case. How do I go about finding that information is also many times based upon the idea that I might have to put my hand on a Bible, testify as to what I found. And you just mentioned the three magic words, uh, material, relevant, and competent. And honestly, people don't understand all that a lot of times. And when I explain to them that I really should be talking to their attorney about this, it has somewhat of a chilling effect. But what it does is it really frames the issue so that as a professional investigator, I'm searching for facts that will lead to evidence, not for just to, to get the story, so to speak. Right. And, you know, you bring up a good point that just popped into my head here when you mentioned that. Actually, every single thing I do every day, I do in anticipation of court. And so I don't get sloppy or casual about it. I do it, you know, properly according to the rules, according to the laws. And in the, according to the rules of evidence, for example, maybe my report to my client is very brief, but it's going to be in writing and it's going to be an email. And I write it in such a fashion that a year from now, somebody looks at that, then they're going to know exactly what I've got. And if, if something is a rumor, I put it, I heard a rumor of, and, and we all know where, where rumors really, it's just backward. But I do everything in anticipation of court. Now, sometimes, John, you and I get people who call us. And they want us to do something, and it's it's not illegal, unethical, or immoral. We can go ahead and do it. And they may not have an attorney involved, or they may have an attorney involved, but they choose not to involve us with 
attorney. That's their call. You can do it or not. You know, I've been at this so long, and John, I know you've been at it so long, that if, if somebody comes to me and says that this is the kind of case I'm working on, I know what they need. And I know what their attorney needs. True. For example, in Michigan, an infidelity case, a husband and wife, I know what they need. I know that Michigan is a no-fault divorce state, but I also know if I can show that one of the parties is having an extramarital relationship, then I know what the standards are for me to be able to prove it and to establish that. I know how it can be helpful. And if an attorney says to the client, no, no, that stuff doesn't matter in Michigan, I tell them, you get the wrong lawyer. Yeah. Because it's absolutely, that's absolutely true. But, but be that as it may, maybe more peculiar. I think that there's some bearing. Well, maybe all it will do is give my client ability to list a whole bunch of other people on prospective witness list that their spouse will look at and say, I don't think I want you deposing those people. Let me give you what you want. <laughs> so eventually it translates into dollars. So I, I do a lot of that, a lot of domestic investment. And I do a lot of adoptions, a lot of criminal defense, and then just general litigation support, witnesses, etc. I don't do any insurance defense surveillance any longer. That's young man's work. It's hard on you physically and mentally. No, I know. To your point, I, I like to, and this is a, a phrase that I like to use, is that I I supply the smooth stone for David to put into a slingshot against Goliath. <laughs> and it's the David, the uh, criminal defense attorney, or it's the David, the uh, plaintiff's attorney, that has to go up against the uh, the powers of the government or the powers of a major corporation, such as a billion-dollar insurance company. I like to think of myself working for the little guy. It seems to have a little bit more, for me, gives me more personal satisfaction. I've worked for insurance companies. I've worked for the government. Tends to be just another case, just tends to be an expense item. Whereas if I'm working for somebody that is severely permanently injured as a result of an accident or someone else's negligence, or I'm working for somebody that's been I'll use the words between falsely accused or overcharged for an incident. Both of those people do really care about the outcome of that matter. One is living a lifetime of pain. The other is maybe living a lifetime in jail. So, yeah, there's a little bit at stake for what they do, you know, for what I do, I should say. And for me, I I find that very, very gratifying work. I I agree. I think of myself as helping my client, whoever that is. I'm here to help them. I'm in the helping business. And every now and then I'll get somebody that says, I want to know this and that, the other thing about somebody, because I want to go after them. I'm not in the revenge business. Oh, I agree. You might have to find someone else. I don't. I once had a company named Squire Investigations, and it came about because I live on Squire Court in uh, Milford, Connecticut. But really, what I would say to the attorneys is, I'm the squire to you, the knight in shining armor. It sounded yeah. silly, but you know the point was was there. I was there to help them, make them look good, the, the attorney look good, meaning that I get them the facts that they needed for court and so they could prevail in their case. So. But everybody in this business has to learn their own state laws with regard to reporting conversations. Oh, yeah. And we have a unique law here in Michigan where we can use uh, trackers on vehicles within certain circumstances. Most or many states that is not legal use that to our advantage. And most of the people I hang around with, they don't want to do anything improper because they don't want to be the reason why we no longer. What would I recommend somebody doing if they were to start and try to get into this business today? I would say 
associate yourself with a someone who's been in the business a while and you can learn on the job. Nothing quite like uh, this is like many occupations where the textbooks can only take you so far. And then after that, there's the meet and deal relationships with your client, with people in the public, with police officers, with court clerks, et cetera, and establishing rapport with them. I happen to, you know, keep keep a clean cut look, if you know what I mean, personally, because I, I don't want anybody to categorize me as, well, you look like this or you look like that. I don't wear a mustache or a goatee or a beard or anything. So uh, no barbed wire on your biceps? Oh, no. I hide all the tattoos. <laughs> I'm kidding. Matter of fact, John, when I'm representing someone in a, who's facing a criminal trial, I tell them, lose all your facial hair and get a haircut so you look like an altar boy. Don't worry. It'll grow back. Except mine doesn't. <laughs> and they look at, I mean, they look at me kind of funny because you know that juries, they tend to believe people they like. And they right. tend to not believe people they don't like, and neither of those have any facts or the truth of the matter. And yeah. if they like the defense attorney or if they like the prosecuting attorney, they're more likely to believe them. It, it is just what it is. We have to be realistic about such things. And I also had a question, Tom. I mean, during the course of since 93, I guess, till now, and I started in 97, but from 93 until now, have you been mostly a solo practitioner or have been there times when you've had uh, part-timers or sub steady subcontractors? Can you comment on that? I've had a, a number of instances where I had people working for me as employees. My hope was that I could train them to take on greater and greater responsibilities. I didn't have a lot of success with that, finding people who fill that bill. Maybe that's because I'm in a small area. There are a number of people out there that will tell me I always wanted to be a private investigator. And that's wonderful, but that has nothing to do with the reality. So I'm, I'm typically, I'm on my own. I do have people that I, I use on a contract basis. People who have a license and can do some things for me. And networking with that you and I have done has allowed me, for example, to do work all over the all four corners of the state of Michigan with other professionals. And they use me and I use them and call each other and bounce ideas off of each other. And it's a learning process. I think the longer I'm in this business, John, and the more I know, the more difficult it is for me to find somebody that could come in and, and work with me. I'm just the knowledge gap uh, between that person and me is just too vast. Mm. And uh, that's and I, just my I, personal experience. Now, and also, it, it's also with the type of work that you're doing. You're not a house painter. You're an artist, Tom. Right. Not not to take away from house painters. Don't get me wrong. I would rather have... My wife likes to paint. Yeah, yeah so you, you know what I'm talking about. I do. But there's nothing wrong with the guy that can get up to the third floor and do your eaves. And my hat's off to them to do that. But it's a different mindset. It's a different type of work. And I think of yourself more as a, uh, an artist, more of a painter, a professional craftsman uh, in the true sense of the word. And you can't have a thin skin in this business. No, no. That's true. I get called all kinds of names. I mentioned to you before that I don't use any profanity. I know. There was a time when I wanted to talk to a prospective witness on and he was going to have some helpful information for me. I, I want to say that this was some type of a sexual assault case. And I was representing the man accused. And I wanted to talk to this guy. And I called him. And I told him who I was. And I told him the attorney I'm working for and who he's representing. So I, I laid that all out so that he knows what I'm doing. And he started in on me, calling me names and swearing, cursing, swearing, cursing, 
and swearing and curse calling me and, and my client every bad name under the book. And I'm, I'm maintaining my cool and I'm trying to do a yeah, but yeah, but I just want to talk with you, so to speak. And uh, after about five minutes of that, I said, you know, I called you to seek your help. I just wanted to chat with you. I'm just trying to be polite with you, friendly with you. And all you've done is use profanity at call me every name. There's silence on the other end of the phone. And he says, you know what? You're right. You haven't used any profanity. <laughs> and suddenly, I mean, suddenly, it's like he had an epiphany. And for the next 20 minutes, he told me everything I needed to know. Mm. <laughs> I thought, well, good. That's good. And then there was another time where I was working in a criminal defense matter. And I was in the courthouse with the attorney I'm working with. And he came out of the judge's chambers and he says, Tom, I got to ask you something. He says, the judge here says that, say, he says, the judge here says that, that you've uh, accused him of being a, uh, an a-hole or, or, or at worse. And he says, so what about that? And I said, really? He says, yeah. I said, well, first of all, I don't use profanity. And he looked at me kind of funny. I said, I don't use profanity ever ever to anybody. I said, secondly, I said, I don't know this judge from anyone else. I don't know what he looks like. I've never been in front of him. I don't really know anything about his work. I'm not sure I would have ever said that. I said, and then thirdly, you have to ask yourself who told him that. Right. And who are they trying to discredit? They're trying to discredit me. They're trying to discredit me because there isn't an ounce of truth in any of it. And so then why would they say it? And it, it was just at a time where I had worked on a couple of homicides in the area where the police had the wrong guy. I'm not saying that we got somebody off on a technicality. No, rock solid alibis. He was somewhere else. We got the wrong guy. The police don't believe it. Just think that I made something up. So there's, you know, there's some animosity. It's like the TV movies with private detectives that have this love hate relationship with some of the police. That's true. That is true. There's some of them that just simply don't like you because I, I don't know. They perceive you as the enemy. Yeah, you work for the dark side. Yeah, and I don't. I, I I pretty much ignore that because I'm not fabricating anything. My name is on. I have you know my own integrity, my own reputation. That is only to, only going to, that I gather truthful or accurate information. And again, you get it in such a manner that it's admissible and so on. And I had one homicide comes to mind. They had the wrong guy where I talked to a half a dozen witnesses that had already been spoken to by a Michigan State police detective. He had intimidated and threatened every one of them. And I had a hard time getting to sit on a chat with them. And I ended up winning them over, and they ended up telling me everything I needed to hear. My client, well, actually, frankly, it was the truth. And then we went to the defense attorney and went to the judge. The judge ordered the prosecutor that they will not go after any of witnesses selling marijuana back when it was so yeah the police were threatening it petty stuff yeah i'm gonna take the police officer would say you know if i hear you're selling dope out of here i'm gonna have your kids taken well they don't have that authority do they no you know and it's just nothing but being a bully so i you know there's a there was a dislike of me by some people in that police agency and i suspect that that's where that comment came from that went to the judge just to, just to, cause they knew I was involved in a case. They wanted to discredit me right out of the shoot. Right. I don't know if, it, I don't think it worked. Well, uh, 
I I think about just prior to COVID, and it seems like a, a long, long time ago. I was called to testify in a uh, homicide trial and two habeas cases related to prior homicides, and they were all. One was a cold case, so it was about you know 15 years ago. But they 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 got around to arresting the gentleman recently, and then the other two were uh, habeas cases where they. Uh, you know, they had been tried and convicted, and now they were in post-trial relief activity, appeals activity. And I went back, and I had to read my reports that I had written years ago. And going back to what you said earlier, Tom, about the reports and, and being accurate and being thorough, I had completely forgotten two of these cases, well, one of these cases. And I had to go back over my notes again, and thank God I had written intelligent, coherent, reports that spoke right to the to the matter and what if i didn't hadn't done that you know i would have been fried on the on the witness stand but because i had been uh you know known by the locals as having worked on exoneration cases finding people that did not commit the acts that they were accused of there was some animosity towards me and it came through in the way that they decided to uh, go after my website <laughs> and wow yeah, and information that I had blogged on, even, you know, in a blogger. And I think back to that, and I'm saying, wow, that's a reach, right? That's a, that's a real reach. <laughs> One of the thoughts that ran through my mind was that if, you know, that attorney didn't have the facts, so he, he couldn't pound on the facts, and that attorney didn't have the law, so he couldn't pound on the law. So what did he do? He just pounded on the table and yelled right. at me. and. Right. But that was, you know, because somehow I was this uh, rogue detective that had it in for the local police department. And it was the farthest thing from, you know, my mind. But thank God, you know, I had good reports and I had, you know, a solid track record to work off. But could you imagine? You know, I rem you reminded me of something when I was a federal agent. We'd learned early on that defense attorneys are going to attack you. They can't attack the documentary evidence and so on. So what they do is they try to attack the investigating agent. At that point, I learned that, that I'm the tip of the spear. And their best crack at getting their client off is to make me look bad, catch me something proper, illegal, whatever. And and I think, I think, John, that that is also true now in our private investigations, to attack the investigator. And if... And, Hey, bring it on. You know, I, I try to do it the best I can. I will, and, you know, I try to do a, a good job and so on. God willing, it'll come out, you know, the, the right way. That is one of the things that they attack. Now, think about it if you and I work on a criminal defense matter, and if we stumble upon some police misconduct in their investigation, well, that police officer is the one that the attorney is going to be attacking. And if the prosecutor, in an appellate case, if you've ever looked any of those, I'm sure you have, if the prosecutor had been guilty of some type of prosecutorial misconduct or whatever, that's who you attack. And it goes with the job. That's part of the turf. So taking those good notes, like you said, and writing that good report, like you said, it, you know, it makes everybody in the room believe. I get accused of witness intimidation. A cop will talk to somebody and they'll say ABC. And I go out and speak with them, and they'll say A, B, C, D, E, F, and G. 
because I'm always told that I ask more questions stuff. And you were nicer. <laughs> well, I I try to be. I, I know. You know. That's the that's the theory. I'm sticking with that, right? So yeah. Anyway, and then prosecutors will get upset. They read a police report and then they hear about my report. They think, well, you must have threatened them. You must have intimidated them or you threatened to kill their family or to bribe them with a with something. And, and I've been threatened at least a half a dozen times by prosecutors who want to charge me with a, a felony. And you feel kind of naked out there because they want to charge me with a felony. Okay, so I can't testify because now suddenly I have Fifth Amendment considerations here. And I didn't really know what to do because the attorney I'm working for, he's not my attorney. She's not my attorney. They're the attorney for the defendant. They can't represent me in that. So I simply came up with my own solution. I've never heard anybody else do this. When I hear that the prosecutor has said that about me, said that they might do that to me, I grieve them to State Bar Grievance Commission so that if they do charge me, it'll look like retaliation. That's my best defense right there. And secondly, I'll be pointing out in my grievance that what they've done by threatening is that they they may be guilty of extortion. They may be guilty of uh, witness intimidation, being me. Yeah. And they're guilty of violating my client's Sixth Amendment rights under the U.S. Constitution his right to his own defense. And I'm part of the defense team. And, and I think when they see that, they suddenly come to the realization, maybe this wasn't such a good idea, because I don't think they really understand the role. Some of the prosecutors are young and new and in small, small counties, you see it. Often. They, they don't know what an investigator is or what role we play. In the big counties, the, the major metropolitan areas, they get it. They understand. Yeah. They understand the adversarial process. You and I are not the adversarial pro- uh, role. We're in, the, we're in the gathering facts to let the chips fall where they may. The attorneys are that, that argue. No, for real. So, Tom, we've, as you said before we got on, we could go on for hours, you and me, <laughs> two, old, two old war horses trading stories. Yeah. But, but really, the stories we're trading is for the young ears and the newbies, people that want to get into our business. Hey, we've been there. We've done this. We've been in the trenches. We've lobbed the grenades back, you know, and so it's. It's good advice. It's good listening. I think it's also valuable to know that the profession that we are in is is that. It's a profession. It's a business. And how you comport yourself all the way across the board, from the smallest interview all the way to testifying in court, all, all goes to the service that you're providing for your client and how they uh, receive the best that they can. So is there anything else that you'd like to add? And how can people get in touch with you, Tom, if they want to talk more with you? Well, I can give you a phone number if that's what you want. Uh, email address would probably be better. It's uh, pretty simple. Williams.thomasm at Gmail. Williams.thomasm at Gmail. Okay, perfect. Is it easy one? Just as a side note, coming up February 1st of 2021 will mark 50 years as an investigator. Congratulations. 20 with Uncle Sam and 30 in private. And, you know, I enjoy this. I, I really do enjoy it. It's gratifying. It has its good days and its bad days. I'm sure you've had some of both. But I enjoy it. I, I really do enjoy it. I enjoy helping people. That's what I have And I also enjoy meeting people like yourself. You and I have made some great friends through uh, NALI, the National Association. of Sure have. I can't tell you how many wonderful speakers have enlightened about things that I never knew existed. We had an expert speak to us one time, John. He was an expert in identifying 
bodies that have been burned, okay? How often will I need to know that? Well, probably not often, but if I ever need to, I know who to call. And this man was tasked with the responsibility of identifying the bodies after Waco debacle. How many bodies were there? I don't know. A hundred. I, I, more than that. Koresh, where there was a uh, fire that got started with some agents lobbing some stuff into the compound. Yeah, and eventually, for whatever reason, the whole place burned down and bodies were burned. But he had that task, and I learned all about that. And then the, the concept of mitigation on death penalty cases. Who's ever even heard of that? Well, I had an expert speak. But Nally did, had an expert speak on that. And I was just totally, totally captivated by that whole thing. There are mitigation experts, as in the investigators who are experts in mitigation. And mitigation is not just in death penalty, mitigation in sentencing, things like that. And then I remembered learning about premises liability. If somebody hurts themselves on your property, whose liability is it and what can happen and so on. And some really interesting cases. And I remembered one time, I was involved in hosting a conference in Lauderdale, and I had one of the lawyers speak at that who represented one of the Duke lacrosse players. Oh, and, that's right. Yeah. Um, talk about captivating. Could, could hear a pin drop in it speaking like that. And this was all criminal defense 101. And, of course, he showed all of the evidence that we gathered, the phone records, the bank ATM records, the texting, cab company. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera, and he put it all together on this timeline. He proved their innocence, not just discredited the accuser. That was a that was in addition. He proved their innocence that they weren't there. Whereas the media would have had you believe otherwise. So sometimes it's unpopular cases, and I'm working on some of those right now that were politically unpopular. I think the the Tom Williams tip for the day is get to you know now the conferences are online. There is no excuse. There is no travel excuse. There is no hotel excuse. You know, you you put the time on your calendar and you, you spend the time and you can pick and choose. You can cherry pick the exact speakers that you want to listen to during that conference. And when you get back to where, where we can go to a conference is in person, find the speaker that's going to speak on something that you don't know anything about. I can't tell you how many times, Tom, I went to a conference, saw a speaker that on a topic that I might not have cared about, but I'm glad I did. Don't you know, six weeks later, I got a client calling me up with that exact same need. Boom. Now, either I'm the guy that can do the job because I have a little bit of knowledge about it, as opposed to my peers that don't have any knowledge about it, or I put that uh, client in touch with the expert, and now I've got a happy client with an expert that knows exactly what to do with that situation. So, definitely. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. I couldn't agree more in the, in the Instances where that is helpful is they're growing. Think about all of the digital information in phones and computers and whatnot, where their experts are coming up with more and more of that. And then cell phone towers and location of cell phones and tracking them. This profession is growing. The technology, you know, I enjoy it. Enjoy it. I, 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 I can tell. I don't see myself retiring. Well, that just why don't we just end the recorded portion now and we can chat for a little bit i'll let you be about your uh, friday afternoon okay thank you i enjoyed it i enjoyed it thanks john oh you're welcome tom thank you for listening i hope that i've earned your interest and your time please leave any comments on the website www.johnhoda.com 
Our guest next week is Andy Maslin. Andy was born in Nottingham, England. After leaving university with a degree in psychology, he worked in business for 30 years as a copywriter. In his spare time, he plays blues guitar. He lives in Wiltshire. He is the author of the Detective Ford series. I'm looking forward to my interview with Andy next week. Thank you for listening. Make sure to check out our website, thepicoach.com, for more episodes, PI coaching services, books, and more. If you were either informed, inspired, or entertained by this conversation today, don't be bashful. Share this link with your friends. Better still, go to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. It's the best way to grow the circle around our campfire. If you have any questions, please reach out through our website, thepicoach.com. Thanks so much, and have a great day.